Okay, my dear listeners, strap in. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, where we interview Jay Scott and talk about syndications and what can happen if they go wrong. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen, and with me, as always, is my sober co-host, Scott Trench. Great to be here uh, with you, Mindy, and uh, with my co-host, who has contemplated the meaning of the phrase, you can't drink all day unless you start in the morning. Every time I start in the morning. Yes. (laughs) Every time I start in the morning, I think of Scott. (laughs) That's a lot. (laughs) I think... (laughs) It's more than you would think. I think we should say that Jay Scott has a podcast called Drunk Real Estate, not just we're sitting here talking about getting drunk at whatever time you're listening to this show. All right. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, to introduce you to every money story because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone. And even though real estate syndications are a great investment, we also want to show you what happens when they don't always go according to plan. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or confront the sober realities of the commercial real estate market in today's uh, in, in today's market conditions, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards those dreams. That was good, Scott. That was really good. Okay, it's time for the segment of our show called The Money Moment, where we share a money hack, tip, or trick to help you on your financial journey. Today's money moment is, do you want to hang out with friends, but you don't want to spend a bunch of money on dinner out? Throw a potluck party at your house. Have your friends bring a side dish or dessert and BYOB. You still get the benefits of a fun experience, all for the price of a single item to share and some time cleaning up your house. Some cost-effective potluck items are baked potatoes, crock-potting a whole chicken, spaghetti and meatballs, and really any casserole. Do you have a money tip for us? Email moneymoment at biggerpockets.com. Okay, Scott, before we bring in Jay, let's talk about your syndication investments. Are you investing in syndications right now or thinking about investing in syndications right now? I am in a syndication that I invested in a few years ago. I think that will be impacted by current market conditions, but with professional operation. Um, And I am not currently exploring lots of uh, syndication opportunities. I'm a little bit bearish or fairly bearish on the commercial real estate space through the end of 2024. However, my interest would be peaked if a syndicator came to me and said, I'm about to invest a quarter, a third, or half of my net worth personally into a deal. Okay, now I'm interested, but I'm certainly not exploring opportunities with folks who are, you know, trying a new fund and not are, that's not a major part of their personal positions at this point in time. I think I still have one syndication left. I might have two syndications. I would have to look one was, uh, on the market. So I'm not sure if I have one or two right now, but I have two syndicators whose documents I would read through. Everybody else right now is just getting in the no thank you pile. I'm not even going to read it pile. Uh, because I don't love the current state of the real estate, the commercial real estate space, and I don't love the current state of the interest rates for that same space. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. 
That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a deal machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. It's Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions. All right. Today's guest needs no introduction, but we're going to do it anyways with over 17,000, I guess it's 17,995 forum posts, 15 years here on Bigger Pockets, many more years investing in real estate, hundreds, thousands of units at this point, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in real estate transacted, owned, operated, all that kind of stuff. Today, we are having Jay Scott back on the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. He's the author of not just one, but five Bigger Pockets books with creative titles like the book on flipping houses, the book on estimating rehab costs, the book on negotiating real estate, and more. His newest is Real Estate by the Numbers, co-authored by Dave Meyer, and he's also the owner of Bar Down Investments. Do we have all of your titles there, Jay? And welcome to the Bigger Pocket Money Podcast. Thank you so much. I am co-owner of Bar Down Investments. I'm a partner there with my awesome uh, business partner, Ashley Wilson. And I just want to remind everybody that's listening that when I found Bigger Pockets, uh, it was the day that I decided I wanted to flip a house, and I did a search for how do I flip houses, and that's how I 
found bigger pockets and became affiliated with bigger pockets. So for anybody out there who's thinking that I'm just some big wig real estate investor based on that, uh, that introduction, um, when I started my journey, um, I knew a whole lot less than most people when I found bigger pockets. In 15 years, you too can be like Jay Scott, just post 18,000 times to the forums and uh, write a couple books and you'll be there. Okay, Jay, for those of our listeners who may not be super familiar with you and haven't heard you on the show yet, even though you've been on like a thousand times, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I am a former engineer and business guy from the tech world. Uh, 2008, my wife, Carol, and I quit our jobs and we fell into real estate investing because we were looking for something that would allow us to put our life over our work. And uh, this has given us the work-life balance to, to raise two amazing kids. We live in Sarasota, Florida. And yeah, for the last 15 years, we've been doing what, what Scott mentioned. We've, we've flipped a lot of houses for about a decade. And then for the last five years, I've been focused on multifamily syndication, basically buying, repositioning, and selling large multifamily properties uh, as part of Bar Down Investments. Well, that leads very nicely into my next question. Uh, way back on episode 219 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, we talked a little bit about syndications. Um, I believe it was a two hour episode where we, you, Scott and I just kind of sat around and let you talk for two hours, a deep dive about syndications, all the things you need to know. But now the uh, environment has changed. And today we're going to talk about everything that's going on economically and what happens when syndications go wrong or sideways or maybe not exactly perfect. To start, let's explain to our audience how syndications function. What does it mean to invest in a syndication? Yeah. So a syndication is basically think about when a large real estate deal needs to get done. And when we talk large, it could be 2 million, 5 million, 10 million, $500 million. When a large real estate deal needs to get done, typically the person that's operating the deal, the person that's putting the deal together, um, they're going to go out to their friends, to the family, even to the general public to raise the capital that's needed to do that deal. So if you, if you're doing a $50 million deal, maybe you're getting a $25 million loan on the, on the deal, but then you still have to come up with another $25 million. A lot of real estate investors don't have $25 million sitting around. So they'll go out to again, friends, family, the general public, and they'll raise capital. They'll find people that will put the capital into the deal that will allow that deal to get done. And for nomenclature, for, 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 context as, as we talk through this discussion, we're going to refer to the people that are operating the deal, that are putting the deal together as the operators or the general partners. The people that are investing in the deal, generally they're investing passively. Basically, they're putting their money in. They have no say in, in, in the decision making. They're not doing any of the work. They're just putting their money in and earning a passive return. We typically refer to them as the passive investors or the limited partners, the LPs. So- what, how does an LP make money fundamentally? What are the basics of the, of, of how a return is generated for these limited partners? Yeah. Well, when everything goes right, 
the LP, the limited partner, the passive investor is going to put their money in at the beginning of the project, and then they're going to get paid. And they're going to get paid in several ways. First, they may receive some amount of cash flow during the project. And that means they're going to get distributions of cash. Could be on a monthly basis, could be on a quarterly basis, could be on an annual basis. Um, in some cases, if, if a project's not generating much income, they might not get any. Um, but essentially, it's a profit share. As the, as the project is generating capital, generating income, uh, the operators, the people running the deal are going to share that with the investors. So cash flow is the first way that, that investors get paid in syndications. The second way is that investors are probably going to get some big pot of profits at the end of the project. So hopefully um, you buy a deal for a low amount, you sell it for a high amount, and some, some of that difference is the profit. And so the operators are going to share much of that profit with the investors. So the investors are going to get their money back at the end of the deal, plus they're going to get some big, hopefully big pot of profits as well. And third, uh, the investors may get some form of tax benefits throughout the project. And so this typically comes in the form of what we refer to as paper losses, um, where the, the project is getting some tax benefits from the government and passing those tax benefits on uh, to the investors. So they're going to get to offset some or all of their other income using these tax benefits. And so what happened, what, what are some ways you can lose money if a syndication is underperforming? How, how, how does that work? Yeah. And, and so this is a really important point. I know a lot of people think that syndications and investing in these types of deals is equivalent to making a loan. You put the money in, your money's secure, you get paid every month a fixed amount, uh, but it's very much not that way. The way syndications work is that you are making what's called an equity investment. You're basically a partner in the deal. Even though you're not doing any of the work, even though you have no say over, over the decisions that are being made, you are a partner, which means if the project makes money, you're going to make money. If the project loses money, then you're going to lose money. And so uh, this, this is the thing that a lot of people don't realize. These deals have risk. And for the last 10 years or so, because the economy has been so good, because real estate's been so hot, most people that have invested in syndications have made money. They've made the amount of money, or in a lot of cases, they made a whole lot more money than what the operators projected they were going to make. And so a lot of people who invest in syndications or who, who have been for the last decade probably feel like this is an easy way to make money. There's no risk. I'm going to get my monthly distributions. I'm going to get my big pot of profits. I'm going to get my tax benefits. But the reality is if a deal goes south, if a deal doesn't make a lot of money, um, or if a deal loses money as a partner in the deal, the investor is going to lose money as well and potentially lose all of their investment. Can a LPE lose money, but the operators still make money in a syndication deal? Ooh. Yeah, it's a good question. And unfortunately, the answer is yes to some degree. So again, I mentioned the LPs make money, cash flow, profits, and tax benefits. Well, the operators also make money, cash flow, profits and tax benefits, but the operators also make money in a fourth way, and that's fees. So for most syndications, the operators are going to charge some set of fees for operating the deal. The most common fees are, uh, number one, what's called an acquisition fee. So a lot of times the operator is going to get uh, between 1% and 3% of the purchase price of the property back the day of close. So to put that into perspective, if, if I'm operating a syndication that's a $20 million deal, I'm buying a property for $20 
$20 million. When day one, the day we close that purchase, um, I may be getting anywhere from $200,000 to $600,000 in fees. And this is the way that that most syndicators run their their business, keep the lights on, keep their employees paid, because for the most part as operators, we're giving up most of that cash flow. And so the bulk of our profits are going to come at the end of the deal, not throughout the deal. And so a lot of syndicators look at those those fees, that acquisition fee, as a way to keep the lights on throughout the project. That said, and this is a really good question, we talked about this in, in the last episode that we did on syndications, a good question to ask the syndicators is, how much money are you putting into the deal personally? Because a lot of operators will take that acquisition fee, that in this example, two hundred to $600,000, and they will invest that money back in the deal alongside uh, their passive investors. So a lot of times while we're taking a fee, um, we're investing that fee back into the deal. And then there are other fees that we might take. There's a common fee called an asset management fee. So a lot of us have the CEO type person who runs the deal uh, day in and day out. Their job is to carry out the business plan for, for making sure the deal makes money. Um, and so we'll take one or 2% per year of the income we bring in. And oftentimes that what's called an asset management fee is used to pay that person who's running the project. There might be a construction management fee where we take a fee uh, based on construction or renovation work that we do. Uh, there might be a fee at the sale of the property or the refinance of the property as well. So there are definitely ways that the, uh, the operator is going to make money in addition to the profits that the, the, the project generates. That said, hopefully if a project goes well, uh, the bulk of the money that the operator makes is going to be aligned with the investor in that it's the the profits from the from the deal. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think this is a really important point. And you know, I'll use a hundred million dollar deal for easy math here. But a hundred million dollar deal, the operator might make a million bucks just for buying the thing. Then they might make if it's thirty five million in equity, they might make seven hundred thousand dollars a year in management fees. And then if they're able to increase the value to one hundred thirty five million, that thirty five million in profit, they might split with the uh, investors, 80, 20. And so that's a big pile of money. We're talking about 10, 15, or I think it's 13 million bucks in this example that's going to the operator and, or the folks that are working on the, on the deal there in, in that outcome. So not a bad system. It is a proven way to align interests, uh, in, in some cases, but you're going all in on growth in a lot of cases. And I love your point about how if the, the operator is co-investing a lot of their own cash, perhaps a significant chunk of their own net worth in the deal, that's a good way to couch the risk there. So the incentives are not all for growth, but the preservation as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You want to make sure that that the operator, and again, we talked about this on the last episode. I highly recommend anybody that's that's interested in this particular topic, go back and listen to the last episode, which was all about vetting operators and vetting deals. Um, but this is a, a great way to ensure that your interests are aligned with the operator as a passive investor, um, that the operator is, is investing some or, or a bunch of their own capital into the deal. Okay. Now we're looking at rising interest rates. We're looking at potential issues. What are the biggest risks to syndications today? Yeah. So um, from what we're seeing, there are three big risks in the syndication world and, and the projects that are having uh, issues these days tend to fall into one of three buckets. Number one, um, interest rates have gone up. No surprise to anybody. We were seeing interest mortgage rates at, at, at three or 4% for these types of big real estate projects a couple of years ago. 
Now we're at seven, eight, nine percent. Um, for those investors who've gotten what are called floating rate loans, and floating rate loans are loans where the interest rate is going to to fluctuate um, based on um, the the federal funds interest rate or other other benchmark rates. Um, they're going to see as interest rates go up every month, their cash flow is going to go down because they're going to be spending more and more money as interest rates go up on that interest cost, that principal and interest payment that they're making to the bank. And so there's less, less money left over for their investors. Now, the problem is if interest rates go up too high, there's going to be such a high interest cost every month that there's going to be no money left over for investors. There may not be enough money left over to even pay the bills. And so the number one risk is, is with deals that have these floating rate loans um, where the interest rates go up so high that investors can't afford to, to make any other payments to pay their bills or, or even to pay their mortgage. That's number one. Number two a lot of these floating rate loans are actually short-term loans. And the reason we get floating rate loans in, in the big real estate world is a lot of times if you have a property that has um, occupancy, the number of tenants in there is less than 90%, meaning the deal's distressed, it's, it's a deal that needs some renovation and management improvement. A lot of times uh, banks and, and, and large institutions aren't going to be willing to lend fixed rate loans for long periods of time. So for these types of distressed deals, we have to go out and get uh, these floating rate loans. Now, these floating rate loans, like I was saying, are often two-year loans or three-year loans or maybe five-year loans, which means in some short period of time after you get the loan, you're going to need to either sell the property or refinance into another loan. Well, since since uh, since COVID, a lot of people got these loans back in 2020, 2021, and now they're starting to come due. We're hitting that two or three year mark where a lot of these deals, a lot of these loans are coming due and the operator either needs to sell the property, which they're having trouble doing in this market, or they need to refinance. And the problem with refinancing is because values have gone down, banks aren't willing to lend as much money on a refinance. And so for in, in order for an operator to do uh, a refinance right now, they actually have to bring money to the table. And so that's a very difficult thing for a lot of uh, operators to do. They don't have a million or two or three or $5 million sitting around to do a refinance and bring money to the table. So that's the second risk. The third risk is in this thing called rate caps. Rate caps are basically an insurance policy um, against rates going up. If you get a floating rate loan, you can buy this insurance policy that will allow you to basically maintain the same mortgage payment every month. And if rates go too high, then the insurance company is going to eat the difference. The problem is these insurance policies are typically one or two or three year policies. And as they expire, the rate gets reset. And so the cost of these insurance policies have gone through the roof with interest rates going up, with volatility going up. And so a lot of uh, operators can't afford to, to pay for these insurance policies any longer because they're so expensive. So those are the three big risks. The one commonality you'll notice with all three of those, those risks is they apply to floating rate loans. Operators these days that have fixed rate loans where the interest rate is fixed for some period of time, typically seven years or 10 years or 12 years, those operators are in a much, much better position because they don't have to worry about interest rate fluctuations. They don't have to worry about refinancing. They don't have to worry about these insurance policies uh, expiring and have to buy a new one. So I'm not saying that that People that the operators that have fixed rate loans don't have some risks. They do. There's some eviction risk these days. There's some vacancy increase these days, which is, which is impacting things. Um, and there are other risks that, that impact even fixed rate 
loan uh, uh, projects. But for the most part, the big risk these dates are, are, are deals that have floating rate loans. Okay. The first thing you said was rising interest rates. Yes. Uh, you said that rising interest rates may cause the operator to not be able to pay all of their bills. What happens in that scenario? I'm an LP. I have invested in Bob's syndication, his interest rate rose, and now he can't pay everything. What happens to me? Well, remember, you are a partner in the deal. And so um, if that deal struggles, um, you potentially have some some risk there, some financial risk. Um, if the deal struggles to the extent that uh, the property um, uh, struggles to pay its bills and ultimately gets foreclosed upon, well, you could lose some or all of your investment. Now, there are steps in there that that come between not paying bills and getting foreclosed upon. But at the end of the day, um, uh, an operator who is struggling with a deal essentially has one of, of, of two options. They can either sell that deal. Hopefully they're going to sell it for a profit, but they might have to sell it for a loss to save some of your capital. Or if they struggle long enough and they can't sell the deal, they're going to have to face repercussions from the bank, which could be a foreclosure. Um, so, so a lot of operators these days are, are facing those two scenarios where they're selling properties, um, for less money than they were, they were projecting, um, in some cases for a loss, in which case their investors are taking a financial loss or they're getting foreclosed upon, in which case their investors are often taking a full financial loss, losing their entire investment. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
It's Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. NetSuite.com slash BP money. But wait, there's more. I have so many more questions for you. Then you said floating rate loans. You can sell sometimes for less than what you wanted to sell it for. You can refi. And in some cases, you have to bring money to the table. If my uh, GP refis and has to bring money to the table in order to refinance, Am I expected to kick that in since you keep saying I'm a partner in all this? Yeah. So uh, there are a few things that can happen. So let's take a deal where uh, we got a loan for $10 million and in two years that loan terminates and we have to refi into a new loan. The value of the property is dropped and now we can only get a loan for $8 million or refinance for $8 million. We get our refinance for $8 million, but we still have to pay off that $10 million loan that we had. So we need to come up with $2 million. This is what's called a cash in refinance. Not a situation anybody wants to be in, um, but this is what happens when values go down and people are forced to refinance. So in this case, the, the group, the syndication group, the operator needs to come up with $2 million to put into the deal. A couple ways to do that. One, if the operator could have foreseen this coming, and a lot of times they can. And if there was an opportunity to save a bunch of money along the way while you're heading towards that refinance, for example, not paying investors cash flow, telling your investors a year before this, this, this situation occurred that, hey, we have a feeling in a year from now we could be in a bad situation where we're going to need to save a million or two dollars or two million dollars to put into a refinance. 
we're not going to be paying you distributions for the next year. Well, that's one option. And that's actually one reason why good syndicators will say, hey, we're not going to be paying you distributions for some period of time, or we're going to reduce distributions for some period of time. Um, this isn't always a red flag. Sometimes operators are doing this proactively because they foresee a situation like this. So that's one option that they actually save up the money. Maybe they have money in reserves. Maybe they can use other money that they've raised in the deal that they were going to use for something else. So instead of building that that dog park for $2 million, they're going to take it and, and put it into the refinance. Um, so basically coming up with the money themselves in the deal. So that's number one. Number two, and again, you're going to want to read your documents, but for a lot of syndications, operators have the right to get a loan. Either they can loan money to the, the syndication themselves, or they can go out to a third party and raise money, additional money through a loan that can carry them over for something like this, this refinance. So that's a second option. They can put the money in themselves. Keep in mind that when, when operators put money into a deal through a loan, typically they're getting a decent interest rate, six, eight, 10%. Um, so you, you want to find out like, what's the interest rate they're going to get get paid because you don't want to incentivize your operator to lend money to the deal just to, to earn interest. Um, but that's the second way. The third way and the most drastic way is what's called a capital call. And this is where operators go back out to all their investors and they say, we need you to put more money into the deal. Your capital call will either be a voluntary capital call or a mandatory capital call. A voluntary capital call is where basically the operator says, we need more money for this deal. In this case, we need $2 million. And we would like all of our investors to put in extra capital to basically help us raise that $2 million. But as a voluntary capital call, you're not required to do that. You can choose not to put more money in. If you choose not to put more money in, well, somebody else can put your your share of the money in. The operator can put your share of the money in. Another investor can put your share of the money in. They can go out and find a new investor to put your share of the money in. You're going to get most likely diluted. Your investment percentage in the deal is going to get diluted by whatever amount you choose not to put in. You're not going to lose your investment. You're not going to be shut out of the deal. You're not going to be penalized any more than the, you might get diluted. That's a voluntary capital call. Or you can put the money in that as requested and you don't get diluted. You'll maintain your equity share. Uh, the second, the, the mandatory capital call is, is a little bit more draconian. And that's where the operator has, has said up front in the documentation, if we do a cop capital call, you are now required to put more money in. If you can't put more money in, there's going to be some severe consequences, potentially as much as losing your entire investment. And so for a deal that has mandatory capital calls, you're going to want to make sure that you have money sitting in backup um, to put into that deal if things go south. This is especially important if you're investing out of, let's say, a retirement account, because retirement accounts, typically, you can't just add money to it willy-nilly. You need to have that money there already. And so if you're in a situation where there's a mandatory capital call, you've invested through a retirement account, you need to re-up your investment and you don't have any money in your retirement account, you could be in a situation where you're forced to lose um, or get penalized to some degree in that investment. Yeah. Going back just with the purchase of commercial real estate, I am under the impression that commercial real estate doesn't have fixed rates for like 30 years, like a, a residential. It's more like an arm where there might be a fixed period of time, but then it resets. Am I correct? So that is the the the, the example of the the rate resetting, that's the floating rate loan. And typically it's resetting every month based on some 
benchmark. Um, and so, yeah, as rates go up and down, your mortgage is going to go up and down. Sometimes it's fixed for a year, um, or, or, or longer, but often it's, it's, it's on a monthly basis. Um, but there are actually, it's, it's actually pretty common for there to be fixed rate loans, uh, in the commercial real estate space. So we still get loans from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to large conventional lenders. And the most popular types of loans that we would get from Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac are seven, 10, 12 years fixed rate loans. Now they're amortized over 20 years, typically maybe 25 or 30, which means at the end of seven or 10 or 12 years, the loan won't be fully paid off. And if you still have that loan, you're going to have to either refinance or you're going to have to pay it off. But the interest rate is typically going to be fixed for that seven or 10 or 12 years. So you don't need to worry about interest rates going up in that, pe- in that period of time. Now, one third of the market is on variable interest rates yes. and that creates a huge problem. So one of the things we haven't talked about, we talked a lot about how um, interest rates are putting pressure um, from a financing perspective on existing syndications. They're also putting pressure on valuations um, and the exit valuations of those in the form of rising cap rates. I'd love to ask you about that. And to, pay, to, to, to pile onto that question, I'd like to ask you about the pressures that uh, outside of financing, syndicators are seeing on NOI growth in the form of rents not coming in as expected. Austin, Texas, for example, to pick on one market, rents are down year over year and costs are going up for insurance for labor, for those types of things. So can you talk about how interest rates coupled with these NOI pressures are hurting valuations? Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about valuating um, commercial real estate, how we determine how much a piece of, of commercial real estate is is worth, uh, we care about two numbers because there's a formula. And the formula is uh, net operating income, basically the amount of, of income the property is generating, divided by cap rate. And cap rate is basically just a multiplier in the market. It's expressed as a percentage. So a higher cap rate um, actually means values are lower. Lower cap rate means values are higher. Um, and yes, People are getting, and when I say people, I mean deals and operators and investors are getting squeezed on both sides of that equation today. Um, so we'll start at the top of the equation, the net operating income. So your, your income um, that the property is generating is influenced by two things, how much money you're bringing in and how much you're spending on expenses. And certainly when you have a softening market, you're going to be bringing in less money for a couple of reasons. Um, one, rents aren't growing as quickly. And a lot of times in, in these deals, we're projecting that rents are going to continue to grow at two or three or 4% a year. But in a lot of places right now, we see rents growing at 0% a year or 1% a year or negative even in, in some markets. And so we're seeing less rent growth than we were expecting. And that's hurting our projections. Um, number two, vacancies are going up. Uh, a couple years ago, we were seeing properties where literally 98, 99, 100% occupied most of the time. These days, we're going back to the historical averages of vacancy, which is, or occupancy, which is 92, 93%. Um, and so we have more units empty and we're not collecting rent on those units. But even on those units where we aren't empty where we have tenants, we're seeing more default on, on rent. A lot of people are starting to struggle because, uh, uh, rents are going up. People are, um, getting their hours cut. Uh, a lot of people aren't making nearly as much money as they were relative to inflation a couple years ago. And so we're seeing this thing called economic vacancy, which means, uh, we have people in the units, but they're not able to pay their rent. And this is actually worse than, than regular vacancy where the units are empty because we can put a new person in, in the unit, 
But with economic vacancy, somebody in the unit who's not paying, we're not going to get any money out of that unit until we evict them. And we're seeing a huge issue with evictions these days. Um, I invest a lot in, in Houston, Texas. Right now, the, the backlog of evictions in Houston is over 80,000 people. There are 80,000 uh, cases in front of judges for evictions, which means evictions are taking four months, six months, eight months to get people out of units. If they're not paying in that time, that unit is basically not only are you not getting any revenue for that unit, but most likely the the tenant is doing damage to the unit. There's going to be more renovation when they actually do leave. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of problems on the revenue side. Then on the expense side, we're seeing insurance rates go through the roof. So people are paying a lot more for insurance than they were a couple of years ago and more than they were expecting. With valuations having gone up the last couple of years, we're seeing property taxes in a lot of areas start to go up. What we see is in a lot of areas, property taxes aren't reassessed every six months or every year. It might be every two or three or five years. And so we're seeing a lot of places where property taxes are jumping up because values are so much higher than they were three or five years ago. Um, and then labor and material costs for renovations, for maintenance, uh, payroll costs. So for a lot of large commercial properties, uh, we have leasing people who sit in an office all day to, to meet tenants. We have maintenance people who, who are there on call 24 seven to deal with maintenance issues. They get paid a salary and salaries and, 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 and payroll are, are going up. So on the, the income side of things, we're seeing a drop in income. We're seeing an increase of in, in, in expenses. And so this number called net operating income is dropping. So that's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is cap rates. And again, that's just some multiplier in the market that tells us how much uh, a property is worth. And as you pointed out, Scott, cap rates have been going up. And there are a lot of reasons for this that, that we don't have to go into or we can if you want. Um, but the fact that cap rates are going up means that values are going down. The multiplier um, for a property in a particular market is is dropping. And so values are just less than they were based on the same amount of income a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. And so both sides of these equations are getting hit, which means the value of these properties are dropping significantly. We've seen 20 to 25% value drops for a lot of, uh, at least in the in the multifamily real estate world. Uh, office space has seen uh, a drop even higher in a lot of markets. Um, uh, Self-storage is starting to see a, a lot of softening and values coming down. So across a lot of different asset classes, we're starting to see values drop considerably. Um, and it's it's a result of both income and cap rates uh, changing. And I'll also talk about supply, which is a ma major factor. A lot of multifamily construction um, begins one, two, three years in advance and it goes through permitting processes and long you know, uh, uh, processes to get approved by the city and, and plan out um, design um, and uh, and build. And we actually have 900,000 um, multifamily units currently under construction in this country. And again, this is all regional. So some of this supply is going to really hit in certain regions, which can impact your rent growth um, to a large degree as well. Would you, do you agree with those point, those additional points? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there are so many variables that come into play here that it's really hard to kind of predict where things are headed. But it, it's very obvious that today that, that a lot of things are conspiring to make it very difficult uh, for these large commercial deals to continue to operate. Um, I like to say that uh, the issue isn't necessarily a bad market um, because um, in a lot of cases, um, commercial real estate investors are used to a bad market, high interest rates. We talk about interest rates um, or mortgage rates being at six, seven, eight percent. Well, historically, 
they're at six, seven, eight percent. So six, seven, or eight percent is not necessarily a high number. The problem isn't that number or any other number that we're talking about. The issue is that we've seen such a radical change from a year or two ago when people were buying these properties. They went in with certain expectations because mortgage rates were low, vacancy was low, rents were going up quickly. And so they projected that things would keep going the way they were going. But here we are two years later and a lot of things have changed. And so it's the change, uh, in, in, in economic conditions that are causing a lot of these problems, not the conditions themselves. Okay. So I'm, I'm in uh, one, one other question here around this. I'm, I'm an LP. I'm in a deal. Let's use my hundred million dollar deal example that we talked about earlier, right? It, I have 35 million in equity. Um, you said it might be down 20% in some markets. So now we have $80 million in asset value and 5 million in equity. That's obviously really bad news for me. In the REIT case, we saw REIT valuations crash over the last eight, 19, 20 months, right? We saw them go down 33%. Um, we just talked to UC Escola from um, uh, Seeking Alpha, who is a good, great analyst in that space. How, when, when I think about the syndication market, um, these are private investments and private funds. They're not publicly traded, so they're not valued on a continuous basis. How should I think about that as an LP if my syndicator is not like they're not? Of course, they're not going to get it appraised on a daily basis. But like, how should I think about that in terms of understanding my position and? whether I'm in trouble or not. It's a tough question. Um, and, and I feel like there's two questions in there. There's one, how do you, how do you value your, your interest in a particular deal? And for that, I would say that's, that's above my pay grade. Um, we, we all have to do things differently. Um, for a lot of syndicators, a lot of operators, um, we will provide valuations at the end of the year, but we're not doing formal appraisals. Um, because a lot of, uh, retirement, companies, uh, self-directed IRAs are going to ask for a valuation that's a, a requirement. And so we will provide those. But in a lot of cases, we'll basically just provide the same number that we bought it at. We'll say that the value hasn't changed. Even if it's gone up, we're going to say it hasn't gone up. It's it's whatever we bought it at. Um, so asking your, your, your operator what the value of the property is, typically you're not going to get a good answer because as you mentioned, they're probably not going through some formal appraisal process, even on an annual basis. Um, so that, that's number one. Um, but from the, the perspective of how do you know how an asset is performing? Um, this is where it's important to have done your homework up front. It's really important to have found an operator, um, that communicates well. Um, an operator that has been in situations before that, that they've had to, to handle difficult situations um, and to find out how they did that. Um, we rely on our syndicators, our operators to be communicating to us. And I'm a passive investor in a lot of deals. Um, and so I've seen the gamut of, of those syndicators who uh, communicate really, really well, who are going to tell me all the problems. Probably they're going to tell me more than I want to know. I'm probably one of those as well. I probably tell my investors more than I should um, because I'm just, I'm a blabbermouth and, and, and I like to sleep well at night and I like everybody to know everything. Not necessarily a good thing, but, but that's what I do to the other end of the gamut where um, operators that don't communicate at all until there's a major issue. And so you need to decide what level of communication you're looking for. And that's something you need to, to, to vet early on or before you actually make the investment uh, to ensure that the level of communication that you want is the, the level of communication you're going to get. Unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for after uh, the deal has been done because there are rarely any requirements for a syndicator to communicate um, with 
with their investors. The one exception is if there's a tax audit, a lot of documents, at least our, our documents all basically say, if there's any IRS action or an audit, we need to communicate that to all of our partners. But other than that, we don't have any legal requirements to communicate. Um, but again, good syndicators are going to communicate. So you want to ask up front, how often am I going to get an update? Is it monthly? Is it quarterly? Are you going to do Zoom calls for your investors on some regular basis so that we can ask questions? Are you going to make financials available? So a good number of, of operators actually make the full financials for the property available, uh, either quarterly or, or semi-annually. Um, and so um, if you have access to the financials, even if you don't hear from the, the operator themselves, if you're savvy enough, you should be able to look through the financials and see, if not knowing that there's a major problem, at least see trends. So certain numbers are trending in the wrong direction. Um, and so that's a really good question to ask your operators before you get into a deal. Are you going to provide financials? Because if the answer is yes, you're going to have a lot more insight into the deal than if the answer is no. But at the end of the day, once, once you turn over your money, um, your opportunity for, for, for changing anything has been severely limited. Um, so you just have to hope that, that you picked a good syndicator at that point. So I'm, let's say I'm in a couple of syndications, listen to this, and I'm going to have a couple, I, I'm, some are going to go well, some are going to be bad outcomes, right? Because of the pressures here. So even great, sophisticated, awesome operators who are making good decisions the whole way can just be a victim of circumstance for the timing of one particular deal or whatever with that. As a LP, how do I, how, what, what are some things that you'd be thinking about? Like, Hey, this is a problem that I should be really worried about because, uh, bad bets, bad decisions being made on the part of the person running my money. And this one was really just great bet, great business plan executed. Well, market just worked against us this time. How, how do I make that distinction or what, what are things that you're looking at and the ones that you're LPs, you're an LP on? Yeah, it, it's a hard question because you never know what's going through the mind of the person operating the deal. There's so many variables involved that, again, I, I often get asked the question, why would anybody get a variable rate loan? Um, but when you really understand the mechanics of how these deals work, there are times when you either have to do it or where it may be a smart calculated bet. Um, we have a, a deal where we did a, a variable rate loan. Um, we've faced the, the same risks as everybody else. We're in a situation right now where that third risk, that insurance policy, that rate cap, um, we paid $30,000 for our rate cap when we bought it back in 2020. Now that it's expiring after three years, we have to renew and it's looking like we're going to pay close to $400,000. So $30,000 to $400,000. Um, and so we had really good reason for why we did that. And our justification, I'd like to think we, we didn't make a bet. Well, in retrospect, it was the wrong decision, um, but we didn't have a lot of other options at the time. Um, and so it's not so much about um, about what the decision was early on, because a lot of times there's good rationale for those decisions. And it, it I, I even I feel like I'm a pretty good syndicator, but the deals where I'm an LP, I would never question the people I'm investing with. Um, at some point, I had to trust them to make the right decision and to make decisions about things that I just didn't have as much information as they did. The bigger question for me is how do they handle it? Um, the bigger question for me is, are they proactive? And so um, not giving myself a pat on the back because we did get ourselves in a situation where um, where we have this expiring insurance policy, but one of the things I like to see from, from my syndicators when I'm a passive investor, and one of the things that we did was we knew that this was a risk a year ago. 
Um, a year ago, we knew that we were a year away from this expiring rate cap. We knew that rates had gone up tremendously a year ago. And so what we said to our investors a year ago was, we're going to be cutting our distributions. We're going to be distributing less money. And in fact, we went to zero distributions for much of the last 12 months um, because we knew how much money we wanted to have saved in reserves as a worst case scenario should interest rates keep going up, which they did. Um, so now that we are coming upon that time where we have to renew our insurance policy um, and we have to renew for two years, we have $800,000 in the bank that we can use to, to, uh, to, to rebuy that insurance policy. Sucks for us and our investors that they missed out on a year of, of, um, of distributions. And that's something I have to live with and, and, and I have to explain that to my investors. But I would much rather have done that than tell my investors for the last year, everything's great. No worries. Don't worry. And then we get uh, to, to where we are today and say, now we're $800,000 short. What are we going to do? And so we want to see. I want to see that my uh, that my operators that I'm investing with are being proactive from that perspective. And so that's the first thing I would say is just because you see distributions getting cut doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. In fact, it could mean it's a good thing. Um, you, you'd rather see your, your, your operator do that early rather than too late. So uh, again, it, it's not so much the decisions that operators made a couple years ago. Certainly there were situations where operators were way too aggressive, made decisions that, that they probably shouldn't have made. Um, but instead of second guessing at this point, it, it's really more important to see how your operators are responding to situations where, where they could potentially have a lot of risk. But you know, I know Mindy has a question here. I just want to chime in with this: is it's a it, these are bets. Everything that we're talking about is bets. There can be good bets and bad outcomes. There can be bad bets and bad outcomes. There can be bad bets and good outcomes with that. And I think that's that's where you got to just use your judgment and see how folks are handling things. Um, you know, because the new a new dawn will emerge for this asset class in a general sense, and you want to be smart about it and understand that in any asset class, it's going to be cyclical. Real estate, uh, single family real estate multifamily, commercial real estate, the stock market, all these asset classes are going to be cyclical and you got to be able to separate good bet, bad outcome, um, and, and the, the opposite. Here's the thing to remember about these deals. And, and people often ask, should I be investing in a syndication now? And, and what are the risks longer term? Keep in mind, most syndication deals are, are, are projected to last somewhere between five and seven years. Um, and if you look at an economic cycle from the, the worst part of the market to the best and back down to the worst, it's typically five to seven years historically. The last one went 12 years. It was a really long economic cycle, but historically economic cycles are five to seven years. Um, which means if you can withstand the headwinds of the deal, if you can withstand the worst things that can happen in the deal, there's going to be some point in that, uh, in that deal where it's an optimal time to sell and you're going to make money. So the key isn't so much of, uh, is now a bad time to be buying? Is now a bad time to be selling? The question is, can you withstand all of the economic headwinds and all the, all the issues that you potentially face in this deal long enough that you can get into the next part of the cycle where things are going to be better and where it's going to be a better opportunity to sell? And if a deal can, can survive long enough, it's going to make money. So, so you want to make sure that your operator is in the mindset that we're going to do whatever we have to, to survive. Because again, whether it takes three years or five years or 10 years, eventually there's going to be a money-making opportunity as long as that deal can survive long enough. Okay, Jay, this is something I get a lot. Uh, what do you think of about non-accredited investors investing in syndications? So to me, 
and, and this is this is a, this is a personal opinion. Um, I've met a lot of non-accredited investors who are a lot more financially uh, savvy than some accredited investors that I've met. And as far as I'm concerned, there's not a direct correlation between being accredited and being a savvy investor. Um, certainly there, there's something to be said if, if you've achieved a million dollars in net worth, or if you have a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in income, it probably means it's more likely that you have some financial education or some financial savviness. But again, there's not a direct one-to-one correlation. So as far as I'm concerned, um, I, I think it's less important. Are you accredited or, or non-accredited? Um, it's more important. Do you understand the risks? Um, are you investing a significantly or a, 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 a nominally small percentage of, of your portfolio such that if you were to lose that investment, it wouldn't hurt you uh, considerably. Um, and do you understand who you're investing with and what the investment you're, you're making is? Um, the SEC is looking to revise accredited uh, investor um, definitions. Um, they're likely to do two things over the next couple of years. One, they're likely to raise that million dollar net worth. Um, I've, I've heard if you, if you index it to inflation, it's probably closer to five million now, but they're probably likely to raise that to two or three million dollars. But they're also likely to institute, um, an exception for people that take a test. Basically, um, if you can prove that, that you have some financial knowledge, you're financially savvy enough, um, that you can, you can meet accredited investor status, even if you don't meet it from a financial standpoint. So that to me would be an optimal result. Um, allow people to prove that they're, they're financially savvy enough to, to, to make these types of investments. I do believe that the government has the right to, to protect. Um, uh, people that don't know what they're doing to some degree. Um, but I just don't think that the current definition of accredited, uh, achieves that, that goal. Jay, thank you so much for coming on to bigger pockets money today. The episode, uh, 219 that we, uh, that we recorded with you a couple of years ago, one of my favorites of all time. And I continue to get feedback about that from folks to this day because of the value and the good, honest, forthright opinion on how to, how to, uh, do some due diligence on that. And I think that you, probably saved a lot of people who listened to that show some money, um, even in the context of the negative pressures in the current environment. And today to come on as an operator and talk about the realities of the market and the hard times and pausing of distributions and that kind of stuff, um, as an honest, straightforward approach and, and humility around that, I, I think it just, uh, speaks the world of your, your character and the prospects for your businesses over, over the next, um, the next decade or so. So really, really appreciate it and admire you and all that you've accomplished and, um, uh, your courage to come in and talk about the, the difficulties in this industry in the current environment and the way you're playing the game uh, to the best of your ability in that. So really appreciate it and grateful for all your contributions over the years and look forward to seeing what comes next. I appreciate that. And I want to end with this, that um, uh, we talked a lot on the last episode about asking operators the hard questions. And and one of the hard questions is, um, give me a a situation where things didn't go the way you expected them to go. Um, And I just want to remind everybody that's listening that um, you want an operator to have an answer to that question. Um, it's not bad when they come back and say, here are all the problems that I've had. Um, the important thing is that this follow-up question of how did you rectify the situation? How did, how did you mitigate the risk that they have a good answer for that? If you get an operator that says, no, I've never had any problems. I've never been in a situation where anything's ever gone wrong. That to me is a much bigger red flag 
than somebody who says, yeah, I have had things go wrong. Let me tell you about how I addressed it. Um, so, so you will talk to operators this year and next year and forever in the future, people that were doing deals now that are going to have some stories about things that went wrong. Um, again, that's not necessarily a red flag and, and I'm not here to, to beat up any other operators because we're all going through this and, and, um, and the, the key is that, that we're doing the right things by our investors along the way. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Really, again, can't can't um, give you enough praise and, and gratitude for all you do for Bigger Pockets and the real estate investing community. And today is no exception. So, thank you. Love you guys. Love you more, Jay. Jay, if somebody was looking for you online, where would they find you? Um, it's easy. Jscott.com. Um, just go to letter J S C O T T dot com. Jscott.com. Check him out. He is a wealth of information. Jay, of course we love you. We love all of the information that you so freely share with our listeners and our listeners love you too. I'll speak for them. They all love you so much. Thank you. We will see you at BPCon. Uh, everybody who is attending BPCon will see you too. Okay. Scott, that was Jay Scott and I love him. I love his candor. I love his ability to really share the, the warts that the syndication space is either facing or will be facing very soon. And I don't feel like he was throwing anybody in particular under the bus and just instead giving an overall, Hey, if you're investing in syndications, this is what you need to look out for. What did you think of the show? I can't gush enough about Jay Scott. Jay is one of the smartest people you're ever going to meet. He's a breathtakingly transparent. He has been for 15 years. His, he's, he joined Bigger Pockets in 2008, and you can go back and see his posts where he documents the detailed uh, outcomes of all of his flip investments, many of which were huge winners and a couple of warts uh, in there. He's been done, done real estate all over the country and across multiple different strategies. And I believe uh, that he is taking great bets and making great, great things there. And even he's struggling and he's willing to admit it and be and continue that transparency and, um, around the market. And I just think that there's a lot of sobering lessons in today's episode. I think that a lot of people who are in syndications are going to be facing a lot of trouble as the commercial real estate market continues to face headwinds to the back half of this year into 2024. And we're privileged to have that uh, uh, opinion and perspective, and again, breathtaking transparency from someone in the in the space that is is running funds there and facing those headwinds uh, in there. A lot of folks, I think, are not going to be as forthcoming, but hopefully, bigger pockets can change that, and we can create a community where folks are willing to discuss the the troubles and challenges and valuation pressures and cash flow problems that are impacting the syndication space, um, because. At some point, maybe it's right now, maybe it's next year, maybe it's in two years, maybe it's in five years, there'll be great opportunities again in the space to invest. And this is an asset class that I, th I know a lot of people are interested in. It's all bets. It's all allocation. Can't put all your eggs in one basket where you can lose it all. Um, but uh, uh, it's certainly um, been tough for syndicators in the, in the past. And again, privileged to learn from Jay. Yep. And like you said, near the end, if you're going to be investing in syndications, know the risks understand what you're getting yourself into and read every word in the document. Ask these sponsor questions and keep asking questions until you understand the answers. All right, Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. That wraps up this episode of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. Again, go listen to episode 219 when Jay just does a deep dive into the concept of syndications in general. 
Uh, this is Scott Trench. I am Mindy Jensen saying kids stay Blue Jay. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple. And if you're looking for even more money content, feel free to visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash biggerpocketsmoney. Bigger Pockets Money was created by Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. Lastly, a big thank you to the Bigger Pockets team for making this show possible. It's Military Appreciation Month, so I'd like to personally thank all our past guests who have served and all our listeners who are serving, deployed, veterans, or in the reserves. But I'm not the only one showing appreciation. Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond with exclusive rates, discounts, and tools. This month, join Navy Federal and get $50 when you open a credit card. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. With 24-7 U.S.-based member service and resources for veterans transitioning to civilian life, Navy Federal is here to help you reach your goals. Head to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Disclaimer, must join an open membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. Annual percentage yield 0.25% for membership savings account. $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions.